The reason, as we'll see for this necessity, was not because this woman deserved any of this. As we'll see, this woman had nothing. She wasn't seeking the Lord. She wasn't doing anything to deserve a special attention. But the reason he had to pass through Samaria is because this was the gracious will of the Father who was seeking a worshiper and many other worshipers in this town of Samaria. And this is then the mission of the Messiah to come and to save this woman who is lost. Verse 5 gives us the setting to this event. It says in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's interesting that this well, there, there are many reasons to think of this well as a special well. Jay, I forgot the name of the pastor, but a pastor has said before that there's a lesson in itself just to this well. The fact that this well had been here for many centuries, and it's interesting to think that when you look in Old Testament history, how many kings and emperors and powerful men with wealth had built beautiful things and spent money with temples and, and, and art. And yet, those things were all gone in time. Wars and things happened and things changed. Wells dry. And yet, this simple well built by the hands of God's servant Jacob, by the blessing of God in all its simplicity, was here for hundreds of years. And it's still there today, by the way, if you visit Israel. And blessing so many generations with water. So it is interesting how we can see the simplicity of how God works through ordinary means uh, many times. But the greatest reason why this well is so important is not because of the past, but actually because of what it's about to happen. This well is about to enter into eternal history as it comes to the presence of the one who is greater than Jacob. The very Son of God is about to come and sit at this well. And it's in this well that he's going to wrestle with this woman who is not desiring salvation, who's not pursuing the Lord, but his mission here is to bring her to salvation. Secondly, this well is also important to notice. It's not a common well. This is a spring well. The, the word he used by John to describe this well is, is very specific in describing this is a spring well. There is a spring in the bottom of this well bringing water up. And for us today, this may be an insignificant detail. You know, what's, what's the big deal? It's just a well. It's just water. But for the first century Jew or for the first century Palestinian, this was a major difference. They knew very well what this meant. From a spring would flow what they would call, this was part of the vocabulary, living water. Uh, for us, we may read the passage the first time and think that this is a spiritualized way to say something. And, of course, ultimately we know it is. Just talking about salvation. But the expression living water is actually known for the people in the first century. Uh, a term, this term was used for fresh or running water, opposed to water which had been sitting on a jar or on a pond or in a cistern. Those were just the normal water, but the living water is the one that it's running. Uh, and this is the living water that takes away defilement, takes away sin, that's used for rituals of purification. We talked about baptism this morning. This is why you see so many times people going down to a river to baptize. The reason for that is because they wanted that living water that could be used to baptize the Christian, and then that water would be the washing area of the sins. You don't want water that's sitting there. 
where the impurities stay in that same water. And the Jews understand this very well. So, so the fact that this is a spring well is great significance to these people. In verse 6, it says, So Jesus then, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Something that can easily be overlooked here is the fact that Jesus is wearied. There's a beauty and, 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 and a wonderful reality to the fact that we behold here the incarnation. Uh, Jesus, though truly, uh, though he was truly a man, he was not only a man. He, he, he was truly a man, but he's also God. And in this sense, what you see here is the creator of all springs, the one who sends the rain over the just and the unjust, the one who is Lord over all and, and controls the wind and the ocean and the sea, now finds himself in his humanity in a place where he depends on this Samaritan woman to get him water. And there's a beauty to the incarnation, to this human body that Jesus had coming to earth for our sake and to now rescue this woman, which will eventually, this ministry, become, will, will turn out to be the salvation of the whole world, that all of those who would come to Christ by faith. But here we see specifically his salvation toward this Samaritan woman in his incarnation. Not only he was tired, I believe there are three reasons here for his tiredness. The first one, of course, he's a man, he's a human. Secondly, he was, we know that he was traveling by foot. He didn't have a donkey at this part to, to carry him. But lastly, the text also says it was the sixth hour. We know that for the Jews, the day started at 6 a.m. with the sunrise, and it was all the way to 6 p.m., the sunset. And here we find ourselves at noon, at, at the sixth hour in the middle of the day, and this is, of course, the hottest part of the day in the Palestinian desert. This is the worst time you could be out and about is in the sixth hour. It was noon. It was the hottest time. The sun is scorching hot in the Palestinian desert. And Jesus is hungry. We know that because the disciples went to get food in town. We know that he's thirsty because he asked this woman for water. We know he's tired. All the perfect context for evangelism, right? <laughs> but that's... The context in which our Lord, instead of thinking of himself and his own needs, he's thinking of the needs of this woman. Verse 7 tells us, a woman from Samaria comes, she came to draw water. There's something really odd about this verse, and I hope you can see that with me this morning. Why would a woman come to draw water, a sidecar, we know... Is about a mile and a half from where this well is. Why would a woman by herself at noon come to draw water? This doesn't make much sense, especially compared to the tradition how women would do this in the Old Testament. We know from the Old Testament that women would come in groups for safety, of course, and they would come either in the morning, early in the morning, or later in the day when the sun is not as hot. Why would a woman choose to come in the hottest time of the day by herself to get this water? John is telling us, something, telling us something here about this Samaritan lady. This woman is doing everything that she can, it's very clear by the circumstance, to avoid everybody. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to talk to other people. She doesn't want to hang out with the other women. And there are probably two reasons for this. Well, later on in the text, it becomes very clear that this woman was an immoral woman. She was known for having five husbands, and the one that she was living with now was not her husband. 
And because of that, most likely, she was trying to avoid the uncomfortable and judgmental presence of other women who probably didn't want to be with her anyway. And on the other hand, she was probably wanting to avoid them. Those two things are taking place here, and that's why she comes at noon. And there's a lesson here just in this fact that this woman is coming because of all her problems in the worst time of the day, and that's when she meets Jesus. Think about that. Isn't that, and this is probably reality for most of us, isn't that because of our screw-ups that most of the time we're brought to a place where we can come to meet Christ? Is it when everything is going perfect in your life and, and life is great and perfect that you come and you seek God's word and you pray and you depend on him and you seek for satisfaction in him? No, that, that can't happen. But most of the time it's because of your own screw-ups, just like this woman, that you're brought to a place where you find yourself in a miserable spot and that's when Christ come to me, that which is lost. That's the nature. That's the character, not only this woman, but behold the character of our Savior who is there for this woman. He's not only talking to Nicodemus, he's talking to this woman who is out of a sinful lifestyle, coming in the middle of the day to draw water, and she finds the Messiah there for her. Jesus says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. Give me a drink. He starts by trying to catch her attention and her sympathy. Uh, it's interesting here that Jesus has a perfect strategy. Uh, by asking her for a drink, the Lord Jesus was breaking a great barrier between him and her. Uh, he was a Jewish man, and she was a Samaritan woman. And this puts a, a big rock in between the two. There's a wall between these two. They can just talk to each other. This is not normal. Even the disciples, when they come back, they're, why is he talking to a woman? What is he doing? But they didn't ask a question. But Jesus, by asking for a favor, is breaking that barrier. No, you notice here that Jesus is trying to get to this woman's life. And the whole uh, scene here we're about to, to see is that this woman has no interest in Jesus. But Jesus is the one trying to dig into her heart and talk to her. So he starts by asking for a simple favor. Uh, Jews had no deal with Samaritans, but he comes ask her. And clearly, as you see her response, this woman did not expect Jesus to approach her. Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman was not expecting this Jewish man to talk to her. And you can even hear that by her response, and, and then Jesus' response, there's a, a subtle sarcasm, uh, not sarcasm, sorry, there's a subtle sarcasm, yes, to, to her answer, but then there's even a subtle rebuke to Jesus' tone approaching her. Let me show you this. If you listen careful, carefully, you may, you may hear a subtle rebuke in the way Jesus addresses her. Uh, here's what Jesus is saying. I asked you for ordinary water, the water from the top of, of, of the well, and you were reluctant to give me. You couldn't just make me a simple favor. But if you had asked me for prime water, for the best water, living water, I would have immediately given it to you. There's a sort of rebuke here to a, the beginning of this conversation. And remember, this woman understood very well what the living water was. It's, it's a lot better than the water from the top of this well. 
And maybe this outcast woman uh, thought to herself, finally I have met someone who is needier than me, right? This man, a Jewish man, and yet he's asking me for a favor. Uh, Poor you, you must be really thirsty. For you to ask me, a woman and of Samaria, Jews don't eat with Samaritans, you don't share pots and pans with us, especially to drink water. You wouldn't get uh, the, the dirt that comes out of the Samaritans. And yet she's thinking, okay, finally I found someone who is so needy. And Jesus clarifies this uh, very well. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is they saying to you, give me a drink, you have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus here is saying, I... The reason Jesus asked her a favor in the first place is that he could give to her something. It's less that he needs water and more that he has something to offer and he's engaging in conversation. She doesn't understand that. But Jesus is saying, if you knew better, if you knew who I am, you would understand that you are the one here who is utterly thirsty. I am the one here who can do you a favor. And this is going to be the main mission here for Jesus is to show her two things. To show her the gift of God. That's the first thing she doesn't understand. The gift of God. What is this gift of God? What is its nature? What kind of gift is this? What does it do to a person? And then, who is the one who gives? Who is the giver of this gift? Her problem is ignorance. She doesn't know the gift. She doesn't know the giver. And this is the problem of all of us in this room. And this is the problem of humanity, ignorance. Paul says, uh, he, he writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hard, hardness of heart. This is the problem of mankind, hardness of heart, ignorance. We don't understand. We don't know who God is, and we don't know what comes from him. We don't know what he does. We don't know his character. We don't understand And this is Jesus' mission, this is our mission in the world, is to proclaim the gift and proclaim the giver. And notice that this ignorance, Paul says, is from hardness of heart. It's not just a lack of head knowledge. Later on, this woman, we even mentioned the promise of the Messiah. She knew that there is the Messiah, but she couldn't put the two together. There's no relationship with Christ. She couldn't really understand from the heart what it meant to have received this gift. Uh, This woman, of course, cannot see beyond superficial appearances. She is thinking only of physical needs, the physical water. And just like Nicodemus, she misunderstood Jesus' metaphor, uh, which is talking about living water, which is a real thing for them, but he was pointing to something greater than that physical water. Uh, She thinks, as we've seen in the next two verses, that Jesus is offering water from the very bottom of the well. We see that in verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. There are two problems where you're saying, Jesus. First thing is, I don't even see any jar or pot or or bucket or anything with you. How are you going to do this? And I live here. I know how deep this thing is. You're not getting there. You're not getting there. How are you going to get this living water? And... Even though she doesn't fully understand, notice that Jesus' strategy is still working because Jesus is engaged in the mind of this woman. The Bible is very clear that the ultimate goal is a change of the heart. This is what Jesus wants to see here, that this woman will be renewed in her heart and her soul uh, spiritually. But the way to get to the heart is through the mind. And that's why we preach the word. That's why we proclaim the word. 
That's why we teach the word to our children. It's, it's the meaning of grace is that through the engaging of the mind, as we meditate, as we renew our minds in the word of God, the Holy Spirit is the one who can work in the heart. So the ultimate goal is not the mind, but we use the mind to reach the heart. And this is very clear in Jesus' strategy here. He's trying to engage this woman's mind to get to these spiritual issues that she cannot see yet. And this is, of course, what Jesus wants. And that's why she's asking, are you greater than Jacob? So even though she doesn't get the full metaphor, she's, getting, she's engaged. She's thinking, what, what is this man offering? Uh, this, is, this is different. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Making very clear, this is not a physical water. This is spiritual water. So let's just take a break and, and think of this water that Jesus is offering. First of all, this living water is a gift. It comes from God. He doesn't sell it. He doesn't trade it. He's not looking for something that she can offer back. It's a free gift of God. It comes from Jesus. He is the one who can offer. She has to understand not only what the gift is, but understand that it comes from him. There's no other place where you can find this gift. This gift is, at least in one sense, personal. And this is not a contradiction to what we studied in Sunday school this morning. Uh, There is a sense in which you have to come to Jesus by faith. Uh, and, and this is what he wants here. Your relationship with your parents will not do this. If you go to a Christian school, you won't do this. There's no other way besides coming personally to Christ and believing in him and putting your trust in Christ. Um, so it is personal. It comes from coming to him and asking for this living water. And lastly, this gift is also uh, eternal and unstoppable. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, this metaphor of the living water. The living water is the water coming from under the ground. There's pressure to a spring. And the beauty of this is that compared to other wells that could dry, a spring well is reliable. The spring keeps flowing. And I don't know if you, the experience you have with this, but you could try to stop a spring. You could put a rock on top of it. And guess what? The water is going to find a way out. And we'll bubble through and we'll, get, and we'll well up and, and find its, its way out. And this is the picture Jesus is giving this woman of this water. It's a water that cannot be stopped. Once it gets to your heart, if that spring is there, it will well up, it spring up, bubble through. doesn't matter the trials. doesn't matter the challenges of this life. It will keep you through life if you have this water. And this water is ultimately eternal. Other fountains of this world... There are many fountains in this world. There are many places where we can seek for satisfaction. And yet, if you think of patterns, these other sources usually take you to come again, and you have to go back again. And not only that, the more you go, you have, it seems like you need more of it because it doesn't satisfy as it did before. And that's true about, you can think of substance abuse all the way to relationships and all kinds of things in this life. You may promise a great satisfaction in the beginning, but then you have to, you need more of it, and you need more of it. But here, this gift of God is eternal. It, it, it passed beyond this life to the next life, and this is what Christ is offering this woman, something that can finally satisfy her. Jesus said to her, verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. Um, This woman doesn't understand. She says in verse 15, 
uh, sorry, I apologize, I, I skipped the verse, verse 15 first, when she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she, she likes the idea of this not having to come and get water again and this eternal life that wells up and bubbles through and, and, and it's unstoppable, it's personal. And yet she still doesn't fully understand. She's too attached to her physical needs. And she's still thinking that Jesus is offering the water from the bottom of this well. But Jesus wants her to see her spiritual thirst. And that's why, even though this is a section here in the passage where most people will read and think, oh, why is Jesus changing the subject? Why is he completely changing from the living water to this other topic? He's not changing the topic at all. Remember, his goal is to show her the character of this gift and the giver. And this is precisely what he's doing in verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. See the connection? He's trying to show to this woman where her real thirst is. I have something that can satisfy, but I'm not talking about physical water. Go call your husband. She had sought satisfaction five husbands. The one that she had now was not her husband. And what I wanted to notice here as well is that this was a very unexpected question for this woman. Very unexpected question. We know that just like married people today wear rings, and I'm glad that I'm preaching the sermon after getting married so I can illustrate with something here. So people who are married today wear a ring. But back in the day, it was a lot easier to notice if someone was married or not. Women, we know, they would wear a veil. And you may miss a ring from a distance, but you won't miss a huge veil on top of the head of a woman. And here's how this is important. This woman says to Jesus that she's not married. So most likely, she's not wearing a veil in this situation. Otherwise, she would be a married woman, which she's not. Why would a stranger who doesn't know much about your life, he's a Jew, he's just traveling through, with so much confidence, seems like, comes to you and say, okay, do you want the living water? I'll, I'll give to you. Go call your husband. She's probably so puzzled by this. Why would he think, does he know something I don't? This doesn't make any sense. Why would he ask a single woman without a veil to go call her husband? The woman answered him, I have no husband. Three words, in, in Greek, three words. I have no husband. Very brief answer. This woman has been talkative the whole time, is engaging conversation, asking questions. Now, for the first time, she's just, there's clearly a wall here. I have no husband. Why are you asking this? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus said to her, verse 17, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Again, Jesus is pointing her to her real need, her real thirst. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's hard to tell here whether this woman, whether this, this is just a dodge from her part. She's just trying to change the topic. You know, I'm not comfortable talking about the five husbands. Let's just talk about something else. That could be the case. Um, but it could also be that this was really a major theological and political issue of the time. Uh, there was this big thing between Samaritans and Jews where your whole nation, you say that you are the people of God and you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. What, what is the solution to this? And Jesus answers this question in two parts. Let's first look at verse 22 where he just gives a, a final answer. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
unapologetically. There, there is a right and wrong. It's not everybody can worship God the way they want. No, God has instituted his word. He has given his word. He wants to be worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped, not the way you want. And the way to be worshipped is in Jerusalem. There is a right and a wrong way to do it. You're doing the wrong way. Jews are doing the right way. Uh, as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, to the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God, but Jesus' main focus here is in something greater. Jesus is bringing the good news that something major is about to change, and we see that in the rest of his answer, verse 22 and then 23, which is uh, packed in, in this two parts. But verse 21 says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is a massive, this is massive news to this woman. He's saying, the hour is coming, is now here, when everything you know about worship is about to change, major change. From now on, the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that's what we are. We are in the new covenant. We worship God in spirit and truth. But let's not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, because I believe this is maybe one of the most misunderstood passages in the whole New Testament. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that Old Testament worship was not in spirit and in truth. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that under the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, though God expected true worship from the heart in spirit and in truth, just like the New Testament, in the Old Testament, that worship was encircled by many physical aspects. And what Jesus is announcing here is that all those external things outside the core of spirit and truth are being taken away in this hour of his coming. In other words, what Jesus is announcing to this woman is that worship is about to become more simple, right? That's the Reformed tradition. Worship is simple. We don't need much. Worship is simple. Many external aspects will be fulfilled and taken away by Christ, but the critical core of true worship will be left. And this is how you worship from now on. Uh, this hour here is, of course, a reference to his own person and work. And the climax of this hour is his death. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, several times it says, my hour is not yet, my hour is not come. And he's referring to the hour of his death. And it's at this climax of this hour of his death that he's fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. Uh, when, when he is the temple... Jesus is the temple. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is offering all that at the cross, fulfilling the Old Testament prophets, taking those away. All the covenant rituals of the Old Testament are being fulfilled and swept away. And what is left is the essence of worship in spirit and in truth. The old, co uh, the old covenant worship included many physical realities. You can think of the altar, the offerings, the priests, the ceremonies, the locations, like this mountain that... This lady is asking Jesus, the moons. Um, it, it was a complex system of outward realities, but now uh, we are getting to the part in spirit and truth. But notice that even the Old Testament teaches that these outward things did not capture the essence of worship, which was always 
in spirit and in truth. A good example comes, I'll read from two different places in the Old Testament, Psalm 51. David writes in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare you praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the essence of worship. David says something that is similar to what Micah writes in Micah chapter 6. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good and what, is, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. At the core of true worship, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you find a contrite heart worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And this is what Christ wants of you today. And he explains even the reason for this. The reason is this is grounded even the very character of who God is. Look at verse 24. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We talked about sacraments this morning, visible uh, representation, signs and seals to invisible realities in Sunday school. God is invisible. He does not have a body like we do. He is immaterial, incorporeal. And for this very reason, because he is that way, that is his nature, he is his spirit, apart from some physical reality, we would not be able to understand who he is. That's how he communicates truth to us. It's through the senses. It's through what we can see and observe and touch. That's why we need his word and we need the sacraments. God is spirit, and unless he wills to reveal himself to us, he would remain to us incomprehensible and unknowable because he's spirit. Before Christ, of course, this revelation came through the Old Testament scriptures and through all the physical symbols of worship in the Old Testament. But as the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, another reference to this hour, he has now spoken to us by his word, the Son. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. The Son has made him known. It is through the Son that we get to know who God is, that we worship God. We come to him through his Son, Jesus Christ. Worship must ultimately uh, happen in the spiritual level. That's what Jesus is saying. There are physical aspects. Think of our own worship here today. We're here, and we are in a real building, and we have physical elements. We're holding to things. We are singing. Even our voices are making noise, and there are mechanical waves going through the air and getting to our ear. And that's all part of worship. That's a wonderful thing. We try to make the music as beautiful as we can. We try to make the building as beautiful as we can. But ultimately, we meet God in the, in the spiritual reality. Think of the first three commandments. This is what the third commandment is all about. The first commandment is... You worship God alone. No other God should be worshipped. Only the God of Scripture, Yahweh. Secondly, you worship this God not the way you want to worship, not the way the culture dictates by feeling that this is the right way to do it, but you do it the way he instructs us to do in his word. You do what he wants, not what you want. But the third one is what Jesus is getting at here, spirit and truth. You mean what you say. You don't take his name in vain. When you're singing, 
the, the worship ultimately is not in the words or in the sound carried in the waves, but it's ultimately, do you mean the words you sing? That's the third commandment. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to listen to God, God's word and not just receive the waves in your ear, but he wants you to take heed of it. The main part of worship is the preaching. Are you listening? The listening of God's word is the most active part of worship. That's what he wants from you, that you'd listen and think and meditate, internalize the words of God, take them into consideration, come to him in reverence. Think of what you're doing and do it seriously. When you sing, do you mean the words you say? When you listen, are you taking consideration of your hearing? We are worshiping that ultimate reality is to come before the throne of God, the Lord who created all things, who sustains all things. That's who you're worshiping. You're coming before him through the mediation of his son, Jesus Christ, by the help of his Holy Spirit in you, and you are declaring the truths from a sincere and contrite heart to the God you worship. And that is what God wants from his people. Not in this mountain or that mountain, not in this building or that building, but do you mean, does it come from a contrite heart which is humble to come before the Lord? This is the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us, all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And this is where everything changes. Of course, the English translation here doesn't capture the, the, the full meaning of what he's saying. Uh, but Jesus is saying, this is a reference to the name of God here. I am he. he, he he's saying, especially his speaking, which most likely, he's, this is a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man. So most likely they're either speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. And most likely he's referring to the very name of God. And that's when he clicks, he's the Messiah. It finally clicks in her head. He's not talking about physical water from the bottom of this well. He's talking about spiritual water. Finally clicks, he has offered me eternal life, forgiveness of sins, what the Messiah would bring to his people from the promises of the Old Testament. Now she knows the gift. She understands what the gift is all about. Now she knows the giver. He's in front of me. He's the giver. He's the Messiah. And she receives the living water. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. As we draw to a close here, there, there are several things we could do. We could Think of all the types that we see in this story, right? The fact that if you look through the Old Testament, you have seven wells. And generally speaking, the Old Testament, you have several marriages in these wells. So now you have the seventh well, the seventh husband coming to marry his bride, the church. Some theologians would maybe conclude with that. Uh, you can think even another parallel to that would be the fact that you have the Samaritan woman who has had five husbands and the one that she has now is not her husband. And remember from Second Kings, five nations had come and they had mingled with those five nations and now the ones that they mingle with, the Romans, were not the true ones, but Christ is coming to Samaria and he is finding his church there, the marriage of the Lamb in that town. But let's not talk about any of that. Let's, let's move uh, to talk about, as we draw to a close, Let's look again at the nature and the impact of this living water in the life of this woman. And I want to be very brief with this. 
The first thing we see here is that this love, this living water, this love of Christ coming to this woman's life comes from God. That's the very obvious one. You won't find it anywhere else. We often seek satisfaction in other places. Ultimately, unless you come to Jesus Christ and to him alone, you will not find the satisfaction. But notice that this love of God is not a love that comes and just stays just like a normal well with normal water, like a cistern or a pond. This is bubbling up. This flows. This is living in other folds, and it moves toward others. You see that clearly in the life of this woman. She was filled with fear. Uh, same author uh, here of this gospel, John, in 1 John 4, uh, verse 18 and 20, says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. Notice first that this love moved toward others. If you love God, you love the brethren. And this woman, which before was filled with fear, and she didn't want to see anyone on the street, there's maybe some anxiety to that, right? Uh, what people are going to think of me, she's just think of all the consequences. She doesn't care about that anymore. I don't care that people know I have five husbands and this and that. I'm going to town, and I need to tell everybody that the Messiah is here and that he offers living water. She has to tell him. It moves you toward her. That's what love does. Love doesn't point you to be isolated, but wants to now bring the good news to others. It flows. Thirdly, this love establishes new priorities. Uh, We read that this woman left her water jar and went away into town. The whole time, Jesus' whole purpose was to show, hey, I'm not talking about physical water. I'm talking about spiritual water, your real thirst. And now that she sees that, she leaves the water jar behind, goes into town, and she just needs to tell him about what happened. There are new priorities. There is a change in her life. And this love, of course, blesses all the people. If you uh, read on at, at, at the same chapter, you, you read that in verse 41 and 42. It's to chapter 4. And many more believed because of his word, They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This love is expanding, it's moving forward. And lastly, I'll conclude with maybe the greatest aspect of this love, which is part of what is in you, if you are a newborn child of God. Lastly, this love points to the justice and the love of God revealed at the cross. Each one of you, if you have put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life is a testimony of the justice and the love of God. You can tell people that. How could any more woman from Samaria receive of this living water? She is the type of the worst person you could find as far as morality goes. How can a just and holy God allow a woman who practiced a pagan religion and lived with many different men to experience eternal life? The answer is found at the end of the Gospel of John. And I'll read from uh, chapter 19, verse 28. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. Jesus died of thirst. That's what he did at the cross. The, the cup that he drank, that he asked the Father, if possible, take that away from me, that was the, not a cup of living water, but it was a cup of the wrath of God. The ultimate thirst, the spiritual, ultimate, uh, spiritual thirst in that cup, that's what he drank so that his children could drink of the living water 
that he could give. He died in torment of the ultimate thirst so that this woman, along with all those who would put their faith and belief in the name of Christ, could have living water. That's the God we serve. That's the Messiah who has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's the God we believe, and that's the God we proclaim. May we do so faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of salvation. Salvation belongs to you and to you alone. We thank you that you have come to rescue us from our sins, and we thank you that you have called us not only to be delivered from the penalty of our sin, but you have given us true worship. You have given us your spirit, and now you call us to follow your word, to humble ourselves, and to come to you with a contrite heart, acknowledge the great realities of your salvation to us, realities that are presented to us in your word, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we hope, it is in him that we pray that we would find change and and satisfaction in our lives. Help us not to look anywhere else, but to seek satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to do so, we ask, in his name. Amen.